0: Welcome to Podcast Legends. I'm your host, Todd Cochran. This is a show where we talk with those in podcasting that help launch a space or have a unique perspective on where we have been and where we're going today. Today, I welcome a very famous legend in podcasting, Mr. Brian Ivet. Good morning, Brian, how are you?
1: I'm really good, Todd. Thanks for having me on here. I I don't know (laughs) if I'd say legend.
0: Uh, (laughs) Well, as I I, I told Tim last week, everyone's a legend in their own mind, right?
1: Well, that's true. OK. In that case, dang, I'm, I'm way up there <laughs> if but, we're going by that criteria. But, um, no, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And
0: Brian, for those that may not know you, why don't uh, we just get uh, you to share a little bit of your bio and in your show and what you do and what you've done and what sure. you're currently doing?
1: Sure, absolutely. So um, my my podcasting life started out with a, a show in September uh, 2004, September 28th to be exact called Coverville. And it was, um, basically the opportunity to create a podcast that I'd always wanted to hear. We'll get into more of that, uh, when we get to it. But, uh, since Coverville, uh, way back 12 years ago, I've been adding on to that with shows like, um, the morning stream and film sack and, uh, breaking the panel, the Pokemon go podcast. Um, uh, I'm sure I'm going to be, I better have like a list of keeping track of all the different shows I do because there, are, it feels like there's so many, just start up a brand new show with a fellow music nerd named, uh, Hammond Chamberlain called Soundography that I'm super excited about. So we can, we can talk about all of those and how I've basically, um, turn my entire waking, uh, every waking minute to sitting in front of a microphone or editing, <laughs> you know, um, it
0: currently, I'm doing three shows. This being the third one, and I, I just don't know how I could do any more. Of course, you know, I, I'm doing regular day to day stuff too. But so you are, you're, you've got a heavy load, my friend.
1: I do, and it's uh, it's still not even full time podcasting. I uh, left my job in 2006 to go um, freelance and part time, mostly for the company that I was working for in 2006, but also to take on some other clients. But primarily to be able to focus on podcasting because it was, um, you know, late nights and evenings and basically come home from work, have dinner and then disappear down into the basement studio to record. And that can play um, real havoc with a marriage and with uh, parenting and that sort of thing. So it was really uh, the right decision to move it up into kind of a part time uh, a split between doing freelance and doing uh, podcasting. And I've never looked back. It's, it's always kind of maintained about a 50, 50 split, but the more shows you add, the more that side of the, the fulcrum (laughs) tends to weigh down. And so you've really got to, got to try and keep a balance.
0: Yeah. I'd like to come back to the time commitment stuff later, because that's a interesting aspect that, uh, you know, a lot of folks talk about on standard podcast, one-on-one stuff, but I think your perspective may be even more unique, but Let's, uh, you know, let's jump in the wayback machine and and go way back. And, you know, I, what I really try to, the goal here is I want to be able to find that Genesis moment for you on, mm-hmm. you know, what led to Coverville, um, you know, what, what were the things that happened prior to the launch and, you know, and what was the decision point that, you know, really look for that, um, uh, yeah. Let's go
1: back there. Oh, absolutely. It was, uh, <clears throat> so the year was 2004. Um, <laughs> it was uh, um, working. I think uh, we're doing some work in, on the weekend and uh, we had just turned the basement into a finished space. So it was finally carpeted and we had stuff on the walls and And I had turned the, um, what is now my studio, basically was just my uh, hanging out, playing video games desk, computer desk uh, set up. And I was down here watching television. And back then there was a uh, a cable channel called Tech TV. And it had uh, Leo Laporte doing screensavers on there. And there was, a, there was a show that I regularly tuned in for. And he was talking about this new thing that was just starting up called MP3 blogs. It wasn't even called podcasting at the time. They were just called MP3 blogs and talking about Adam Curry and Daily Source Code and how you just start up doing this. So I w- it, you know, luckily was right in front of the computer when it happened. I pulled up Daily Source Code. I started listening to it and it was just Adam Curry talking in front of a microphone, sometimes in his car, sometimes at the, the Curry Cottage or the Curry Condo or wherever it, it turned out that he was. Um, but he was talking to listeners as if they were right there and it was talking in a way that was very compelling and not condescending and not demeaning, which is what, uh, radio had had kind of become. When I was a kid, I, I really wanted to go into radio. Really wanted to be a DJ because I assumed that it was just like what we saw in uh, in movies and on TV. Mm-hmm. WKRP in Cincinnati, um, a great example of that. Where the DJ has all the control, they're picking and choosing the songs they want to play, they're having a great time, and um, it didn't take long to find out, even before I kind of gotten into that, or uh, uh, pursued anything about it, that it's not like that at all. It's very much um, computer controlled, and and these are the songs that have to get played every hour, and then these are the songs that come up on the the quarter hours and things like that. It's the closest I ever... Mm-hmm. But you know, if you think about,
0: for most folks that don't know what WKRP is, <laughs> that, oh my right. gosh,
1: yeah, <laughs> that
0: was a program that was. Uh, it was. It looked like it. It sure made the, the radio business fabulous, didn't it? it?
1: Really did. And I wonder how many DJs got their start because they watched WKRP in Cincinnati and wanted to go into that line of work. Um, I grew up with a transistor radio, practically glued to my ear, listening to AM radio and FM radio, and and um, it feels like I watched a lot of TV as a kid, but when I think back, it, it seemed like it was a lot more time spent listening to the radio. Dr. Demento was a huge influence on me. And um, that that short form kind of syndicated um, show where you're showcasing a lot, of, uh, a lot of bands that all have something in common, in that case, novelty songs. So when I started listening to Adam Curry, uh, obviously the first thing that you do when you start listening to podcasts is you try and figure out if you uh have enough material or if you've got the passion for something to be able to start making your own and for me it wasn't even originally going to be a show about cover songs it was going to be um a show featuring rarities it was always going to be about music but um but it started out kind of conceptually as being a show about rarities because that's kind of where um my musical taste would lie. I'd get the album, but then if I really liked a band, and there were a lot of bands that I really liked at the time, enough to go and hunt their their B-sides and their singles mm-hmm. and their uh, soundtrack one-offs and things like that. And so I'd go to these import record stores and I'd find this great Japanese import of so-and-so or this great um, uh, UK compilation that has this alternate version. And I was finding that a good portion of those uh, included cover songs that were... Really, departures from the original version. It would almost be a game. We'd have friends over, and I'd play. Um, I wouldn't tell them what I was playing, but I'd play them a, a song that was a cover, and have them guess what the song is that's being covered. Oh. And uh, oh. um, that kind of led to wanting to create a show that specifically focused around covers. And uh, and from then on, Coverville was was uh, born. You know, I I remember.
0: Of course, by that time CDs were were pretty heavy, um, mm-hmm. yeah. but but I remember you know in the in the eighties going to uh, the same type of record stores and find the you know the twelve inch single that yes. uh, you know that maybe they uh, they had a limited run on and you just got lucky and got in and got one of them and um, you know I don't think people experience that so much anymore. Maybe they do, maybe maybe they do, but I, I, definitely not the same experience in going in and finding that. That twelve inch single—that's for sure.
1: Sure, yeah, not as often because I mean, when they—if they, if they uh, like a band now these days, instead of going to the record store and trying to find more by that band, yep. it's so much easier just to go into YouTube or go into Spotify and find everything that band has ever done and 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 binge that way. Yeah. And back in um, the '90s and early 2000s. I mean, the record store. You obviously the internet was around, the internet was around, and you could find out about some of those songs that way. But there wasn't a YouTube. I mean, if you were looking for songs and it wasn't um, available, boy, digitally. That was even before uh, iTunes really uh, went nuts too. So if you wanted something digitally, you were looking at at bootleg sites. Mm-hmm. You were looking at uh, <laughs> uh, Real Real Player. I think had yeah. some yeah. had some mainstream stuff, but um, it was all so hard to acquire and so hard to um to even sample that unless you knew what you were getting into you you were buying sight unseen way easier just to go to the record store and and buy it that way so i have actually a a, uh, a room that is dedicated to cd's and albums and cassettes and um we built it we built the basement and it's just kind of gotten to the point where it's still overflowing and i've had to like take cd's out of the case and put them in these little uh, thin sleeves to be able to store them all. Wow. Uh, definitely kind of a music uh, uh, hoarder probably is probably a good word. <laughs>
0: I, I I think I got over my binge buying of stuff. I was DJing back in the early eighties and uh, so it was overseas too. So, you know, I, I think I've got probably a thousand or 1500 actual albums in storage. Wow. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. It's such a, such a pain to store compared to how easy it is to store digital yeah. music these days, but you lose out on that tangibility. You lose out on the record cover, mm-hmm. being able to look at the record cover and hold it in your hands while you're listening to the album. Yeah. Um, so the next, the next big hurdle was trying to figure out a name. I was listening to other shows at the time, like obviously daily source code, but also the Don and Drew show, the rock and roll geek show, uh, Michael Gohagan and his, um, the movie podcast he was doing, the movie review podcast. Uh, and I wanted, you know, just an experience from finding their shows and discovering them and, and locating them. I knew I wanted something that wouldn't begin with the word the, because you've got to make this decision <laughs> on if you include the in the URL or if you don't. And if people are searching it, if they do www. the blah, blah, blah podcast.com, are they going to find it? So I wanted something that, that number one, didn't have the word the in the title. Number two would be something that um, wasn't punny or would have multiple uh, spellings. And Because if you, there's a great podcast put together by a friend of mine that has a brilliant title. It's called the Anxiety uh, Anxiety Party Podcast, but it's Anxiety Party. And (laughs) she's kind of playing off tea party and anxiety. And it's a brilliant title. Until you're, until you're describing the show to somebody and you've got to do what I just did, which is explain how it's spelled so that they can find it. Um, so, uh, that was the second thing I knew I didn't want to be punny. And then number three, I wanted it to have that same community feel like I felt like podcasting had and has. Um, with daily source code and Don and Drews show and all that stuff that was starting up. There was this this cluster of us that were all in the chat rooms and forums and and on the show notes pages for the daily source code talking about what Adam Curry had talked about and um, and so I wanted it to be kind of a city sounding place, like a a location. and uh, played around with um, I can't remember any of the other options that I came up with, but Coverville, as soon as I thought of it, seemed like the the perfect storm of all those things um it's relatively easy to spell if you hear it you can probably spell it just based on geographic knowledge right (laughs) there there isn't a pun that's going to make you spell it a different way there's no the at the beginning and it definitely has a community feel which is the thing i've really tried to foster with um with the listeners
0: you know that's a lesson i was talking a little bit about earlier today with uh with rob greenley about that you know when you're getting Uh ready to to uh start a brand new show you know uh you know the domain and the name and all that stuff is you know the searchability is critical. it's
1: a huge consideration, yeah, in this day where <clears throat> people live on on Google and in search engines and typing stuff into the address bar and um and are on smartphones mother they're on computers so you've you've got to make it as easy as possible for people to find uh to find your your website and your show yeah. And I oftentimes it just I
0: cringe when I see some show names, and then, you know, the website is actually at a different location. And it's <laughs> right. and, I under, and I understand it's hard to get a domain name these days, but you know, with the uh, addition of all these new top level domains, you can get a dot .show. You can, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do, For sure. and not have to be stuck doing a .com. But uh, if you can get the .com, it's always best. But lots of new TLDs to make it easier
1: a lot more real estate to, to build off of for sure. Um, yeah, so that was, that was kind of the genesis of the show plugged away for uh, the first few episodes. And it's kind of a tendency of mine, um, to pick something new up, get really, really into it for a while. And then one of two things happens. I either stay really into it, uh, video games, comics, movies, music, things like that. Or I, um, I, it kind of fizzles out and I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, that was really fun for about a month and a half or two months. <laughs> and I think I'm done with that. What's the new thing? And so I gave myself, uh, six weeks and said, all right, create, I'm going to do all the shows develop or, um, uh, just go dive in headfirst into it and really, really, um, devote myself to it. And then at that time decide, all right, is this something that, that I want to continue doing? And I'm putting that, that, um, that exit uh, on myself now where I'm saying, all right, I'm, it's okay if I don't want to do it, but I'm going to make that commitment that I'm going to give it this amount of time and then decide if I'm out. And um, it was after that sixth show and getting feedback via email that this was the first unsolicited piece of of feedback I'd gotten that wasn't somebody who did another podcast that I listened to. And then they responded back to me and said, Oh yeah, I listen to yours too. And it's great. This was just out of the blue. Somebody who had discovered my show, listened to it on the website, didn't even use the podcasting tools or anything like that at the time and really liked it and just wanted to send me an email to let me know um, that they really liked it and didn't even have a request. And so of course the next episode, I absolutely played that request and talked about the feedback and and encouraged people to write in more if they had, uh, if they listened to the show, if there was something they liked or didn't like and, and, uh, uh, and, and provide feedback. And it's that, that was the kind of the last piece of the puzzle that I needed to say, yeah, I'm committing to this. I'm going to do it, uh, and continue on with it It was just that little, that little spark from, uh, that, that kind of ignited the rest of the fuel that, that I'd already kind of built around with the show.
0: How early on did you determine that this could be a business and there's potential here, you know, because I know you um, really pretty early on were doing some production work for some other groups, but at what point did that kind of turn on?
1: It was within the first uh, six months, and um, by that time, I'd reached out to uh, ASCAP and BMI and CSAC to find out the legalities of what I was doing, and and they kind of steered me down the path of um, music reporting and music licensing and how it's super, super expensive unless you can actually talk to the labels and reach out and make those connections and get permission directly from the labels and, and the artists, as opposed to saying, I'm going to go the the completely solitary route and paying something like sound exchange hundreds and tens of thousands of dollars to, uh, to license the music. Um, and it was shortly after that, that, um, Oh, what was his name? Ray Slikinski from iPodder X, or at the time just iPodder, uh, reached out to me and said, Hey, we really like your show. We're big fans here. Um, could we talk about doing a sponsorship? And, uh, of course I'm like, oh yeah, you're going to give me money to talk about you in my show. (laughs) (laughs) Happy to do it. Yeah. Whatever you want. And, uh, and from then it became, um, iPodder, then iPodder X. And then the folks from Backbeat Media reached out to me and I started doing stuff with them. And then we actually developed that relationship that actually still, uh, I still have with them today as far as getting advertising for the show, uh, Tower Records, uh spontaneously reached out to me and said hey we really want to really want to do something not only where you're promoting uh Tower Records on the show but when there are cover albums that you really like we want to they have these great end cap displays in in Tower Records in the stores where the managers and the employees would all say oh this is my favorite album this month and it would be like a little handwritten um, magic markered sticker that went on that little spot in the cubby. And then the, the cubby would be filled with that, that employee's favorite album. Hmm. And, uh, they, they said, if there's cover albums that you like, let us know. And we'll actually in our, in one of our flagship stores in LA have a, um, a Coverville's pick of the month. So of course I jumped at that as well. Yeah. Sadly, Tower Records is not around anymore. And I don't think it was my fault. I don't think it had anything to do with the (laughs) advertising, but, uh, they were such a great record store. I guess they're, they're still around in some places. When we were in Japan last year, we were surprised that there was still a Tower Records. And I went in there and I spent the equivalent of $200 in, in uh, American money, in yen, <laughs> buying, yep. buying uh, rare uh, import cover uh, Japanese cover albums, which have been fantastic.
0: <laughs> you know, one thing that um, we were all astonished and, you know, in the, in the back, even, even today, it's a challenge for content creators that want to play music in their shows. And I know there's a lot of guys out there today running underneath the radar, but you know, yeah. what, what was, you know, you got essentially licensed per se. And again, maybe you can go into that a little bit, but yeah. you know, that was like, wow. And it was big news to all of us that you were able to do that and, and be legal.
1: Yeah, it. It uh, it came from those early discussions with Ascap. It basically, once I realized that I did want to stick with this and I was going to kind of ride out for the long haul, I was on a business trip uh, for my company. And one one of the things that I did for my company was that I would travel to newspapers around the country and install the software that they purchased for my company, get it all installed and up and running. And it was newspaper sales presentation software. So I'd work in the in the sales department. They'd have a brand new computer set up that all of the sales reps were going to share that had um, this uh, software on it that was basically pulling from a library of slides to generate these on-the-fly presentations, blah, blah, blah. That's that's about as exciting as that got. But while I was out doing this traveling, this was um, a trip up to the San Francisco area. And I started in San Francisco and then drove up to Vallejo and Vacaville and Fairfield and, and all these other uh, cities up there in Northern California, and I had my my uh, wired uh, wired headphones uh, into my <laughs> Palm Trio uh, <laughs> 650 or whatever it was, and I called uh, I had called ASCAP or I, I had reached out via email to ASCAP on this trip and said, Hey, I really want to find out what it would take to get. Uh, licensed because I knew that from listening to Adam Curry and listening to the, these other people that, that, um, what we're doing, regardless of whether we're making money from it or not, uh, stuff needed to be licensed and needed to be approved or else you could get a a knock on the door from the RIA. And they were hot and heavy. in those, the, those, those, they were, those, those were the oh, Napster days. Yes, yeah, they so were. It was, it was nasty. Yeah, yeah they were, uh they were on full alert. So, uh, ASCAP, uh, uh, Julie, uh, Peng from ASCAP still remember that name, uh, called me cause I'd had my phone number in the email and called me while I was on this drive, uh, around the San Francisco area. And during about a 40 minute drive from, uh, Northern California all the way across the Bay back over to San Francisco international airport. Um, uh, I explained what podcasting was, how my show was being delivered, how is it was being presented, that the tracks were not all individual, that there was overlap, there was segues, there was trivia or, or information about the bands involved, as well as uh, links and show notes that would um, uh, allow people to go and buy the songs legally, as opposed to just being able to download them somewhere. And um And she says, okay, yeah, what we're going to do, we're going to set up a non-interactive license. And and non-interactive versus interactive in the licensing industry means um, the choice of what song comes next is either up to the listener or not up to the listener. Interactive means like Spotify. They can go into Spotify, double click on a song, and they're going to hear that song. Non-interactive is more like what Pandora does and things like that, where maybe you say, I like this genre of music, but it'll keep playing songs for you that you're not choosing based on that, right? Uh, based on that style profile, and so the non-interactive fit with it. But there were some things that were part of the non-interactive that didn't work for podcasting. So they were developing a brand new non-interactive license based on podcasting, and they asked if they could send it over to me and uh, and have me look it over. And this is again. This is me explaining to the electronic <laughs> music or digital uh, music uh, uh, licensing person what podcasting was. So they hadn't even heard about it. Maybe they'd heard the term that they didn't know what it was all about until uh, until this phone call. And they were developing a license now based on my conversation with them and, and the way podcasting is delivered and, and and all that stuff. And so they sent it over to me. It all made sense. I signed it. And then I said, all right, uh, who else do I need to talk to? And, and at the time they said, okay, you need to talk to BMI and CSEC. Those are the three major uh, songwriting licensing agencies in the U.S. Now, what, what these do for me... Um, kind of big picture is they take care of the the songwriting aspect of it. So when a, a performer writes a song, they can license it with one of those three agencies and it's an agency, whichever one that they already have a relationship with. So BMI, for example, has a uh, Prince. And when somebody covers Raspberry Beret by Prince, um, the Hindu love gods, for example, they have to license the distribution of that song with uh, BMI and also report how many times that song is being distributed, either physical media or if it's being uh, distributed digitally, how many quote unquote streams it has being listened to it on and and that sort of thing. And So they pay a fixed amount based on uh, those estimates. Yep. And uh, with Coverville, it's the same thing. Basically, it covers me for uh, when I play Hindu love gods covering Prince, it covers me for the Prince side of that equation so that Prince's lawyers, his estate can't come after me and say, all right, you played a song that features his lyrics and his songwriting. It may not have been performed by Prince, but it's um, uh, but it's his songwriting, uh, licensed songwriting. And so the amount that I pay per year to each of those three agencies is divided up between um, all of those different royalty uh, recipients, and they get <laughs> a few pennies here, a, a yep. quarter here, whatever. And of course, all that adds up. Fortunately, because I'm a podcaster, and I'm not pulling in radio station money, uh, I can still pay the minimums of, of um, uh, about $1,500 per agency per year, which is expensive, but affordable. Um, so, when you... So, and, and I want to make this
0: clear. I You... Went and got this license with ASCAP. Do they still have right. this type of license that you <laughs> they signed? They
1: still do. Yeah, you can go to ASCAP and and uh, and online um, fill out a request the PDF of the non interactive uh, non interactive license. And BMI has one that's very similar now. C'sheck has one that's similar now. And the and what's really cool is the report that I generate has every song that I play uh, played in that quarter and how many downloads. Each of those episodes has and I just give the same report to all three agencies and they have the, um, the software that actually parses out which of those artists are under their umbrella and which of their artists aren't so they know exactly from my list which, which ones are theirs.
0: And I know this is a lot to ask but if you have the links to those licenses I would love to put that in the show notes on this article. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I know there's there's tons of folks that are not doing what you did to do it right.
1: Right. Now, here's the important thing though. Um, when you're working with covers, it's this covers. is mandatory. Yeah. You've you've got to have these because you're paying uh you've got to pay the songwriter. They're the ones who aren't giving you they're they're technically not giving you the mechanical rights that you get from the labels and from the artists. Yeah. And um so if you're doing covers, these are the licenses you, need, licenses you need to have. On the other side of the equation are the labels. And uh, so when I play that Hindu Love Gods cover of Raspberry Beret, um, beforehand I've got to reach out to the label and say, hey, here's uh, here are the songs that I want to play. Um, and back then it was like on a, a piece-by-piece basis. And it was reaching out to Ryko and it was reaching out to um, – uh, Siren and all these smaller labels. I reached out to Warner Brothers, Universal, and um, uh, Sony BMG, and um, aside from one email where they where they said, "Yeah, you know, here's uh, we, we love what you're doing. Here's this this catalog kind of thing of um, of a few of the artists that I had talked to them about, and they said, "Yeah, you can play anything from this catalog. Just let us know." Um, but still haven't heard carte blanche from any of those agencies. The smaller labels though, are more than happy to say, Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. Here, play whatever you want from our catalog, play whatever you want from, from so-and-so just make sure you give us, um, attrition, make sure you include links to where people can buy it, find out more, etc. The only label that ever said no, to uh, my request for Coverville, and it's surprising because it's a label that started out much the same way that podcasting did—was Rhino Records. And you hmm. think of of any label, Rhino Records seems like the one that's so totally grassroots, and they totally get it, and it's uh, you know built from people who. Um, started this this company in their garage much like podcasting did but uh they said they said no and and to this date i don't play anything from rhino records on the show
0: you know so that covers you for covers there's a lot of podcast and that's all you do that's so you know you're good license wise and permission wise you have to deliver that paper trail so all that goes along and that you know that's fantastic that you know you've done this right from the beginning right the But for those podcasters out there, they're doing like the full, a normal track, a normal cut track, not a cover. Right. They're, unless that's an indie that they've gotten permission from, they're under incredible risk.
1: They are. Yeah. And it's, and, uh, it's so easy these days, um, because of how, um, how connected we all are to, uh, social media and, um, being able to find contact information on a site. It's so easy these days to contact the labels. Um, and I think aside from, like I say, the big three, the labels you contact are going to respond to you because they know that this isn't the nineties anymore. You know, Napster is all but gone. At least it's, it's all gone in in its format that it was back in the nineties. And people aren't, buying or aren't stealing as much music because they're able to buy individual singles for the things they want, as Mm -hmm. opposed to saying, Oh, the only way I can get that song I want is to steal the whole album. Yeah. uh, Torrent it or whatever. But, um, labels realize that, uh, that people now get their music recommendations from, other people online and their friends and the, and and people that they follow online and stuff and so they realized that all right, a podcast that plays this awesome song by Sleeping at Last, um, is going to get the word out as much or better than uh, a review in Rolling Stone or a uh, a display in a record store uh, because people follow other people and they're going to hear about it and they're going to check it out based on that. So if there are people out there who are wanting to play music in their podcasts and, um, and are afraid to because of licensing issues or, um, or just don't know what to do, the the best step is to reach out to the labels and, and make those relationships and explain what you're doing. You know, they know what podcasts are. You don't have to explain it to them, but explain what your show's about. Um, tell them how many people you reach and show them, uh, give them a link to an example episode and they might check it out. And, uh, and once you start getting those relationships, it's amazing how, how those snowball every day. I get uh, probably 60, 50 to 60 emails from uh, labels and artists who are promoting new albums that they say, all right, here's, here's four songs that are from the new album that uh, you can play. And, and in my case, uh, of those 50 to 60 emails probably only four or five of them have uh covers in them mm-hmm. but uh, uh but now i'm doing more indie stuff on uh the morning stream uh because of it because there's so much material out there that i want to play and yeah uh so it's worked out really really well all the way around for everybody
0: well i think uh it's like the show's got a lot of great lessons in it and um i encourage those of you that are playing music to do what brian has done and make sure you get those permissions and don't shortcut. And, you know, because if, you know, when that demand letter to take something down comes, cause they don't know who you are, you know, right. it, it can get ugly really quick. Yeah. And
1: it's, and unfortunately once you've gotten that, it's too late to build a good relationship with that. Uh, with that label to say hey i'd love to promote more of the stuff on your label uh chances are they're gonna now have you under the red the red column
0: (laughs) right so So let's i I want i want to talk to you a little bit about the feel of the space you know you've you've mentioned uh you know some of the same names that tim did in the first episode that we did on this show but um you know we were talking about the excitement the just absolute pure excitement of being able to, you know, we really thought we were changing. Well, we did, we're changing the world and everything. So, you know, how did, how did you feel the interaction of the community was at the time?
1: It, uh, it felt like the wild West, (laughs) you know, it felt (laughs) like it felt like we were all these pioneers uh, going out on this unexplored land and then kind of planting our flag and saying, all right, this area right here, this is mine. This is, this is going to be my space. It's always going to be kind of my, Uh, area that i work from hold on for some reason siri thought i just said her name so she was uh yeah it was like this unexplored uh, space that we could all kind of plant our flags in and, and and declare as our own and um there was such a feeling back then of uh camaraderie and and unity where um I could email Adam Curry and I'd get an email back and he's like, Oh Brian, I'm a fan of your show and love what you're doing and blah, blah, blah pod squad and this and that. And, uh, uh, and then he'd play an audio clip of my show replay. Like you do the call in stuff. Everybody was getting Mm -hmm. those, uh, uh, those free, uh, K-12 lines. Yes. Right. Where you could call and leave a message. And so everyone was playing messages from other podcasters on their shows. And, and I was doing the same thing. And, uh, it was such, it did feel like such a, like we were, we were ham radio, uh, stars on the cusp of reaching the mass audience. You know, it was like, it It really always felt like at the beginning there, like we were just on the precipice of this thing that was going to be so huge and such a, a game changer in, um, in radio uh even though it had nothing or it had very little to do with radio only the fact that it was people consuming audio programming um and i feel like to some degree we did change that um that uh that medium um and in in producing our own
0: so that kind of gets us through the initial launching of coverville what what kind of transpired next
1: uh from then from that point on, it was just kind of the uh it's kind of the launch the rocket, adjust it midair, keep it <laughs> keep it up in the air, make sure there's plenty of fuel. You know, it's it's the the small things that you do to adjust your show to either fit your personal preferences or even taking advice from listeners and, and listening to what they're saying. And um Coverville started out as a three episode a week thing. That's how come I've got oh. uh, 11, uh, 1138 episodes after 10 years because <laughs> it was three times a week for a while. Then I pared it down to two times a week and then a couple of years ago made it one one episode a week. However, keeping about the same amount of time. So it was like uh, in those early days, they were six song uh, per episode shows. They were about 20, 25 minutes. And then when I started doing the two shows a week, it kind of up those to being 40 minute shows and now doing, um, doing the one show a week, it's an uh, hour and a half, usually hour and 15 minutes. So it's keeping about the same amount of time uh, of content, but decreasing the amount of time you spend developing it, which I think is important because then it allows you to focus on more of the, the community building, uh, aspects of, um, of having a podcast. And then it's figuring out different ways to promote the show. Like, um, Whether it's doing T-shirts or doing uh, cross promotions with other shows, or joining a network and making, you know, doing all those things uh, with other shows of kind of the same uh, ilk, or uh, in my case, I I tried uh, foolishly to do a concert (laughs) out in Vegas to correspond uh, with the uh, newbie expo. (laughs) Oh man,
0: there's a story there.
1: There there are lots of stories, and we probably won't get into one of them, but. But uh, that was such a great experience, and it was so uh, eye-opening. In just the just the fact of talking to these artists and musicians that we had performing there, we had uh, Jonathan Colton and the Radio Adventures of Dr. Floyd, uh, Chance in the Choir, uh, Natalie Gelman, and uh, Richard Cheese. And trying to assemble them all into this one thing and say, "All right, yeah, how about you know, can we do this?" And and where can we go to get this? The the uh, the place where it ended up, the venue. I've told this story a couple times, but the venue where it ended up, which was the Bally's Hotel Casino right there on the Strip, wasn't the original location. And I only got that space because Rick Springfield had backed out at the last second and left the ballroom available. That's funny, at Bally's. Uh So. Uh, it was actually supposed to be at a, a much smaller venue, a bar that was, that's also on the strip, but it was tucked behind the MGM Grand. It was going to be a really, really good location, but they went bankrupt about three months before the concert. And so I had to scramble um, and find a new location. Unfortunately, Ballys had the place, but uh, That was all, expensive, wasn't it? To put that on? It It really was. And there were, there were, pre-ticket sales and, um, merchandise sales to kind of offset that. But there were aspects of it that, uh, that you don't realize until you're already committed into doing it that are going to be like, Oh, this is going to be that much. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. The ticket sales aren't going to make that. So, uh, it was, it was, uh, a very expensive, but very educational process. And, uh, and I honestly can't wait to do another one. <laughs>
0: and uh, next time hopefully do it where there's not unions and all the stuff that goes along with that
1: yeah that was that Uh. was one of those things that I didn't realize was that all right oh we can have the room for how much oh that's perfect that's what we're going to be paying at the other place great (laughs) sign on the dotted line and then you find out oh yeah you're also going to have to pay for a stage to be built by a crew of (laughs) uh union mm-hmm. workers and it's going to cost this much oh yeah and, and you can't move any chairs or tables yourself so <laughs> it's going to cost this much and of course you want bars right gotta have a gotta have a <laughs> cash bar well it's going to cost this much to have that cash bar mm-hmm. or uh, tickets or whatever oh my gosh what a um <laughs> 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 what an education i got from doing that yeah
0: and uh Social media aspects, too, that were a little bit of an education,
1: too. <laughs> they were. For the most part, the artists there really, really embraced the whole social media yeah. aspect of podcasting. And we won't say, you know, the, uh, the one-fifth of that lineup that uh, <laughs> didn't seem to get that. But here's a clue. We did mention, uh, mention this person's name earlier. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, was, uh, and sadly, I'm a direct response for some of that uh, stuff that happened. Oh, but anyway. It, it, was, it, it was, was such fun. a you
1: know, looking back, that was such a blast. Yeah, it really was. And, uh, all those, that was the best part is during the concert, I was moving around trying to say hi to as many people as I could. And, um, all those podcasters, ones that I was fans of. And what's cool is ones that I didn't know then, but I know so much better now. And I'm working with them now. And they were there at that show. Uh, you look back and say, wow, it's just so cool to meet all those people all in one place. And it, it, from a business perspective it it helped you because
0: you know you went big time and yeah. uh that you know those folks uh those connections you know hey we you wouldn't you do something like that that's pretty hard to top it is and uh i remember that show was it was a great event and uh boy it just doesn't seem like it's been as long as it's been but, uh, <laughs> you know those
1: 11 11 years yeah <laughs> or no not 11 years it's been eight years yeah wow.
0: but still it's 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 been a while but So after, you know, you guys kind of, you know, you had your own production company doing some programming for some other companies and so forth. You've, you've been building more shows. Um, you know, maybe we could talk just a little bit about that time management thing. Sure. Um, you know, I've always told my audience and, and I think what audience, the audience members have to appreciate is like Monday and Thursday nights. I'm, I've written those dates out from here until eternity and in, for the past twelve years, Monday, and Thursday nights, I've dedicated to doing a show, and here I am at eight fifty-three Hawaiian time on Saturday <laughs> doing another one. So the doors right. closed. The family's doing their own thing,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. And that was that was my story for the first for the first couple of years. Um, it was all right. Uh, Brian comes home and does a show, does a Coverville episode Sunday nights, Tuesday nights, and Thursday nights, and the. The basement door has to stay closed and no noise and, and, uh, anything like that. And, um, around the time, uh, 2006, when I did quit my job or, or move to being part time, uh, part of that was because the Denver Post had approached me and said, Hey, we're developing a new podcasting, um, arm of the newspaper and we'd really like you to produce a show for us. Can you pitch us some ideas? And I had three ideas. I had an idea for a show that, that took a single song, a classic uh, piece of pop music and analyzed down to the lyrics based, uh, based uh, completely on what the artist was trying to get across. Like, what does this uh, reference mean? Or what is that uh, mention of a name? Who's that person that they talk about in the song? And then I also pitched him an idea for a daily uh, podcast that would talk about notable events in music that happened on that day. And it would be a show that people could log in every day to the newspaper website and listen to and and find out what was what happened in music on that day. And then a third show where uh, kind of like what we did for the, the song, uh, I would do it for the artist or do it for lesser known artists, uh, bands that you only knew maybe one or two songs by and um, get their history, their their influences who else they influenced and um and kind of where are they now and they said oh my god we love all three of these uh we're going to do the two instead of doing the one that they'd originally commissioned to do originally they said we want these two they picked the lyrics show and the today in music history show and so for the for the next uh couple years i produced these podcasts for the denver post as a as a freelance gig it was great um because they were, they were fans and they were very hands-off. Uh, they took what I produced and said, this is great. We're going to put it up on the site. It brought some attention to um, the, the, uh, the website, the newspaper's website. And also got me some new listeners who are people who are discovering things the other way around. Mm-hmm. And uh, we took that third, uh, that third show pitch. And that's the pitch or that's the show that we just kick-started uh, earlier this year and turned into Soundography so all three of those ideas eventually uh, ended up getting made. And I still do, uh, still produce lyrics undercover uh, these days, but with a, a different person doing the writing and a different person hosting, I'm just executive producer on it. And fortunately today in music history, here's the cool thing about that. Once you do 365 episodes, uh-huh. you pretty much never need to do it again. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I just, you might
1: need to uh, add a few things here and there with new artists that become popular, but for the most part, eh, that's a set it and forget it kind of thing,
0: right? It recycles every year. Yep, exactly. That's cool.
1: So, you know, let's just
0: move a little bit uh, back again on the time management thing. So, oh, did yeah, sure. did the wife put the thumb on you, or how did that go down?
1: It was, it was, um, it was more of a mutual thing. I mean, I realized that. Um, that it was, it was a strain on the marriage to be unavailable for three nights a week. Yep. Um, and at that time I was doing the other shows. So those came in on the weekends. And so my afternoons were gone on the weekends and it was, I recognized it as being a problem that could potentially turn into a worse problem. Yeah. I mean, we were no stranger to time apart because again, at, at that time I was also working for the company that would be sending me out on these week long right. or two week long trips. Yep. Um, and to some degree i feel like those kind of uh separations are actually good for a marriage like being having a day apart here and a day apart there actually makes you appreciate the other person a lot i think i don't know for for our relationship it totally worked but um but i did realize that all right something's got to give and if i really want to do this podcasting thing then then i need to figure out a way to a make that aspect profitable and b figure out something stable and predictable to supplement it because you can't always count on sponsors. Yep. You can't always count on premium episode sales and things like that. You've got to, you definitely have to have a a plan B uh, or or a plan, a plan A.2 that's going to work <laughs> at the same time as plan A.1. And uh, the freelance thing really, really worked out and was the perfect opportunity. It was the company that I was working for. They said, yeah, we're going to have you on as, how about we keep you, uh, working freelance part-time for us. And then some other clients came in and said, oh man, if you're available, we'd love to have you work on this for us. And I'm still doing that level of stuff today. I do the website for, uh, uh, Pete Rose, mm. wow uh, of all people. And he's great to work with, but, uh, but it's as far from music (laughs) as you can get as far from that other side of my life. Um, but it is, it's that tough decision you've got to make as a podcaster when it does start interfering with your life on, all right, how do I manage the time of creating the show and prepping for the show and, and, um, and recording and editing and all that stuff and still maintain a full-time job, uh, parenting responsibilities and, um, I feel like it just really was a lucky situation for me. Not everybody has the opportunity that I did to be able to balance all that out and still actually have a reliable source of income that would allow the podcasting side of things to be, um, to maintain without a lot of insecurity. Right.
0: I think uh, for me, you know, I had uh, done a bunch of stuff through the years that didn't always pan out financially. And my wife put me on a timeline. She just basically said, two years, dude. <laughs> and uh, you can't turn this into a business yeah in two years, two years then, uh, you, you got to figure this out and uh, knock right. on wood we did but the i think the you know if we look at where we came from you know back and when we you know all started and we were like you said your the device you were using wasn't even an ipod to get content right. yeah. and to where we're now with uh, mobile devices and carrying stuff on demand this is uh where do you think what what's next? What's the next big thing? Do you do? You, and the reason I'm asking this is because it's. I don't think any of us completely know, but maybe some of us have an inkling. Do you do you know what sure. next
1: is big? Oh, I wish I knew, but I I I put stock in it. But my, but what I the the direction that I could see us going, and probably the the dream direction, the ideal direction, is um, the ease of use of. Getting shows obviously smartphones being as popular and as easy to uh, easy to find as they are. Everybody's got a smartphone, and everybody has the ability to download a a podcast aggregating uh, program like Pocket Casts or Downcast or um, or things like that. So that aspect of it already already is almost as easy as it can get. You know the show you want, you can find it, you download it, etc. Um, but I see um, the direction moving into, uh, getting it into the rest of our lives that aren't maybe as easy to, um, to pull out a smartphone and listen to a show when you're on a, uh, a bus or light rail or whatever, it's really easy to pop in a set of headphones, listen to your smartphone and, and listen to a podcast that way. But if you're in your car and you don't have one of those cool car hookup systems or Bluetooth, uh, radio or whatever, um, you're finding that you've got to figure out some way of getting the audio into it. And I think a lot of people that haven't discovered podcasts haven't found them because of these diff- more difficult methods of getting them into their into their daily life. Hmm. Um, my dream uh, device is a car stereo that's got Wi-Fi built in. So when you pull it into your garage at night, it automatically downloads any podcast that you're subscribed to and has them stored in a little hard drive along with... AM and FM functions and a CD player or satellite or whatever. But one of your choices is a button that says um, stored media or digital media. And you press that and it's got a list of all the podcasts that you subscribe to. And it's it's overnight, it's downloaded any new episodes of those things. And as you're driving, you just flip over to that, that setup, choose the show you want to listen to and you're good to go.
0: I think what you'll see is the, car, the cars will become wired. They'll get the stuff via digital connection. They'll have a cell. Right. And actually get it via while we're out
1: and about as opposed to having to be you know Wi Fi. And
0: then they'll just hit us for another selfie is what they'll do. (laughs) Yeah. So that's how it's gonna work out.
1: Oh see, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's that's the direction that's kind of the the uh the hurdle or the mountains that, if we're doing this wild wild west metaphor the uh, the the trail, the Oregon trail that we need to keep blazing is ways to make it easier for people who have no idea what a podcast is to hit a button and instantly get it on devices they already have and yeah. with tools and methods that they already have.
0: In Chicago at the uh, past podcast movement, I ran into yeah. you at the at the bar, you're hanging out with uh, with a bunch of fans. Yeah. So I know you have meetups from time to time. Uh, You know, I think a lot of podcasters struggle with that. Uh, You you had a six, seven or eight people hanging out with you. Talk a little bit about your, your community.
1: Sure. Oh man. And the community is so great. The, and and it is, it's basically, it's a foundation that any good podcast is going to, is going to develop. Basically the, the, the meetup, kind of thing only can really happen if you have a good way of communicating with your listeners and saying, hey, I'm going to be traveling here anyway. Uh, This would be a really good place if there are fans in that area that want to get together. Obviously, Podcast Moon was a perfect one because um, there are already fans of podcasts that are already out there. Uh, Maybe some of them attended the thing, uh, attended the movement, which... I heard was awesome and I can't wait to go in 2017 and go for real as opposed to just piggybacking on the last night that it was, uh, that it was happening. Right. But, um, you start out with those, you know, maybe a regional event near you or something, something around those areas. And, oh, there's, and there's a great, by the way, there's a great tool, uh, a new podcast app called Satchel that uh, they premiered there at Podcast Movement, which is really cool because it allows you to find podcasts that are locally produced. So, it's kind of like the other the other way around. Instead of a podcaster saying, who else lives in the Austin, Texas area? Right, Listeners in Austin, Texas can say, oh, what podcasts are being produced near me? And they can kind of seek them out. So, really cool kind of relative thing there. But- um, uh, you find those, those meetups and uh, for me it started with meetup.com and doing more of a podcast meetup and there were other podcasters in the Denver area. We'd get together every month and, and um, uh, it was primarily, you know, it was probably 80% podcasters and 20% fans of podcasts who wanted to meet some of the people who were doing local shows. And then from there, it's, uh, of course you get the, the meetups that happen organically at the, um, at expos and things like that, that have a podcasting kind of theme to them like Dragon Con and, uh, BlizzCon has that. And, um, and then once you start getting enough of a following, you actually can start developing your own uh, events, your own fan events. And uh, I'm part of one uh, that's part of the Frog Pants group called uh, Nerdtacular. We do that every year, well, almost every year, in Salt Lake City, uh, and it is set. It's like three, two or three days of just getting together talking about shows, doing live versions of shows, uh, doing how-tos about how to create podcasts. Um, and it's very much, the ones for Nertacular are very much fan events for the wide range of shows in the Frog Pants, uh, Frog Pants group. And um, as opposed to like Dragon Con where you've got this general podcasting uh, track that people come and attend and, and watch things from. Um, but it's once you get that, that community and you foster it and you don't make yourself um, feel like you're on the iron throne overlooking the community. You, you have to you have to treat it like you are uh, in the community itself. At the same level as everybody else, shaking hands, hugging, <laughs> trading uh, recommendations for movies and songs and stuff you like, and and really being in that community as opposed to lording over it. Once you do that, then um, then you can start treating it as a foundation for your podcast. And they're not just going to be listeners, but they're going to become uh, advocates uh, advocates of your show. And uh, uh, what's the what the what's the religious uh, uh, not prophets, but Oh my no, gosh! I'm um, completely drawing a blank on the word. Um, darn! There's a religious term for people who spread the gospel and they go across the country. Preachers or yeah, preachers. There's uh, another evangelists? word. Evangelists. Evangelists. Exactly. Okay. It. Yes, evangelists. They're going to be evangelists for your show. Thank you. And uh, uh, and that's why you want a community as opposed to wanting fans, yeah. wanting listeners. I think that's a good point.
0: Well, I think we've kind of dug in, found out about Coverville, found out about the genesis of the show. Um, is there anything that we've missed, Brian?
1: Uh, no. <laughs> as long <laughs> as we get a chance, I'll talk about the uh, where people can uh, uh, hear my shows. But uh, this has been great. Thank you so much for uh, for talking about this. This is, you know, it's really cool to be able to look back at those early days and kind of reminisce about about how they were and not feel like it's the same stuff that I've talked about. I get, I, you know, getting to talk about all this new stuff really, really enjoyed doing this.
0: You know, I think too, is there's a lot of, um, you know, as, as we hang out in the space and we're in different social sections of the, you know, we hear the same thing over and over and over and you're like, man, we we've learned this four or five times again and again. So hopefully the show also not only serve as a purpose where people can go and, Kind of learn about the early days and stuff that the the early podcast legends did, but also <laughs> to, um, you know, take some of those lessons we've learned, the stuff that worked and didn't work, and, um, you know, apply it to their shows today because disseminate that out, yeah, yeah for and sure. And it also gives people some perspective of where we've been, um, and they, they understand how easy they have it is today to, uh, to get shows up and launched because. You know, we didn't even talk about the tech side of uh, the challenges in the early days of, you know, that was as, as much a challenge as doing the shows.
1: Yeah. Oh, it totally so. was. Oh, my God. And and the shows almost became about that, about talking about how you were right. struggling with this new <laughs> software to record or, uh, oh, I can only record one side of the Skype interview. How am I going to do this and and stuff like that? Yeah, there's <laughs> there's plenty of that. Wow.
0: Yeah. Mackenzie that does our, uh, show over at blueberry, she calls it her podcast chronicles. Uh, you know, it's basically, it's what it really is, is her pounding the head against the side of the wall when she, something doesn't go right. So oh, that's, yeah, you know, that's sure. the chronicle.
1: So where can they find the show? Contact you all that? Sure. Uh, best place to start is Coverville.com. That's uh, still a weekly show, and it's uh, covers of songs you know uh, by independent artists that maybe you don't know. Um, you can also check out Lyrics Undercover. That's one of the shows that started out being produced for Denver Post, and then when when they went belly up, I just took the show back myself. Nice. Uh, that's at LyricsUndercover.com. Uh, I do a lot of stuff for Frog Pants. You can find them at FrogPants.com, but The Morning Stream and Film Sack are the two uh, to check out. For sure, and then uh, another network I'm involved with the Giant Size Team Up Network. You can find them at GiantSizeTeamUp.com, and I'm on a comic book themed show called Breaking the Panel. We just launched the Pokemon Go podcast, and it's already number one on iTunes wow. uh, in video games. So check that out, PokemonGoPodcast.com, and uh, and man, that, that should be enough to get people started. Talk about talk about the per-
0: Rob and I were talking about this exact topic because there was like five or six shows that launched and none of them i'm like how come someone didn't re- register pokemon go podcast.com and da, 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 you oh, did yeah. it we
1: the uh, the guys who um we do that show with uh Bo york specifically who also is the guy who does the satchel podcast plays the developer who does that he um when it was in beta he said you know what? This thing's going to be huge. I'm buying PokemonGoPodcast.com. Smart smart, yep. smart,
0: smart, smart, smart. You
1: saw the writing on the wall. Follow that guy. He's great. <laughs> He's you know, great and I'm guy.
0: a I'm a big Ingress player, and of course, Ingress led the way for yeah. Yeah. The, all the Pokestops and everything was built upon. Well, the, built they on their database. Yeah, yeah, from that from that source great database. Company
1: yep exactly
0: all right cool hey brian thanks for taking time on a saturday and uh, if anyone has comments on today's show you can email me directly geeknews at gmail.com that's the place to reach me or follow me at geeknews share this with podcasters you know friends and people that are in the podcasting space and uh uh, again thanks for subscribing but uh, brian again thanks for being on
1: my pleasure todd thank you so much for inviting me
0: Yep, thanks so much